The American Institute of Indian Studies was founded 60 years ago to further the knowledge of India in the United States by supporting American scholarship on India. The programs of AWS foster the production of and engagement with scholarship on India and promote and advance mutual understanding between the citizens of the United States and of India. AWS seeks to provide access to scholarship about India to a wide and diverse audience. Welcome to the August 2022 episode of the American Institute of Indian Studies special 60th anniversary podcast series. My name is Anadi Silvakanepal, and I'm the Strategic Initiatives and Project Specialist for AWS. Through this series of conversations, we'll explore and celebrate the oral history of AWS over the last 60 years, including the founding of the Institute, its impact on scholarship and students, and its future. In this episode of our 60th anniversary series, we have the unique honor of speaking to a scholar who has been a part of the foundational landscape of Sanskrit scholarship and education in the United States, Robert Goldman, professor of the Graduate School and Catherine and William L. Magistretti, Distinguished Professor of Sanskrit Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. Besides helping to shape Sanskrit pedagogy in the U.S. and publishing influential translations of a wide variety of Sanskrit literary works, Dr. Goldman has also been very active with AWS, first as a junior and senior fellow, then a trustee and vice president of the Institute. As we look back on 60 years of AWS, not only has the Institute supported research across disciplines and created an important support system for the study of India in the United States, but AWS has also been a critical part of language pedagogy for undergraduate and graduate students. In this episode, we'll hear about AWS and its role in the development of Sanskrit pedagogy and scholarship in the U.S., Dr. Goldman's own work and intersections with the Institute, and the future of AWS, language study, and Sanskrit in the U.S. If you could start off by telling us a little bit about your journey with AWS. You've been a junior and senior fellow, a trustee, uh, and even vice president of the Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to AWS as a junior fellow and how you've seen the Institute evolve over time? Well, sure. Uh, the, um, I began my connection with AIS quite early on in the history of the institution. <clears throat> as you know, the Institute was originally founded by a, a, my teacher, W. Norman Brown, who was a, a well-known Sanskrit scholar at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was a graduate student. And uh, when I had uh, completed my qualifying exams, I applied for a uh, grant from the AIS, and uh, I was awarded a junior fellowship. And I was set up in Pune. Now, um, I don't know how many of the current users of the Institute or uh, fellows are aware that Pune was at one time the uh, the headquarters at that time was the headquarters of the AIS. It was centered in the at the De- Deccan College and it had a uh, an American director, a guy named Tom Simons who had been a uh, consular official of the US government in, in Madras as it was called in those days. And there was an Indian uh, professor, Didi Karve, who was the Indian director. And uh, what people came to know later on as the major kind of institutionalization in Delhi was actually a kind of 
regional office, which was run by the young uh, Pradeep Mahendiratta, who later became the uh, director uh, in India, succeeded by his daughter Purnima. So it was a very different uh, experience then. There was the uh, we, we were set up at the, the Deccan College, and um, I had gone there particularly because it was a center for Sanskrit studies in that a large project, still incomplete after all these years, of a comprehensive uh, Sanskrit dictionary was being uh, put together there. And that meant they had brought in a number of pundits and shastris from all over India to serve uh, as the kind of editorial board, if you like, uh, of the uh, the dictionary as it was then uh, constructed. So it was a kind of easygoing, free kind of thing. There was a hostel there uh, run by a redoubtable Mrs. Kitkar who ran a canteen uh, for the fellows. And it was a kind of convivial thing. We had an annual meeting in Pune, as it was then called, not Pune as it is now. Uh, so it was a rather different experience. Uh, I worked in Pune for a year on my dissertation and had the opportunity then, and this is important for the, my trajectory as a Sanskrit scholar, of meeting daily with Sanskrit-speaking pundits who were working at the Deccan College and reading a variety of Sanskrit texts and commentaries with them. That was very important because I got an, in, a, a way of looking at Sanskrit which was quite different from what I had had uh, previously as an undergraduate at Columbia and as a graduate student at uh, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> where it was a very philological, very Eurocentric uh, approach to Sanskrit. Uh, I, I didn't even know people spoke Sanskrit until I got to Pune. So uh, that kind of changed my uh, ideas about uh, how one should proceed with Sanskrit studies and ways to develop a Sanskrit program, which I later had the opportunity to uh, put into place. Um, it was a little bit less, I would say, formalized than it is now. Just to give you an example, I had worked there for a year in Pune, and uh, I didn't have a job on the horizon at the end of the year, and I was wondering what to do when Professor Brown happened to make a tour of India to visit the AIS in Pune. And uh, he came out to my place where I was living, and we sat around and chatted for a while. And then he asked me what I was doing, and the following year. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't have a job. I don't have a grant or something. So he said, oh, okay, here's another grant. So he gave me a second year's grant. You don't do these things anymore, of course. But <laughs> it's brilliant, though. Informality, but now without the very, very complex, elaborate, uh, uh, you know, protocols of application and getting clearances and, you know, the whole thing that goes on, which is quite appropriate now. But in those days, it was a little bit kind of... I'd say kind of run out of uh, his vest pocket. He always wore a vest anyway. So uh, for me, it was a very uh, good experience. I got to meet a lot of younger scholars from all uh, mainly American uh, institutions, and mostly they were Sanskrit scholars. And that was a, an interesting moment in the history of uh, South Asian studies in America because South Asian studies up until that point had been largely dominated by social scientists. Uh, which is okay, but the humanistic study of South Asia was a little bit behind that. And um, the fact that uh, Professor Brown was a Sanskrit scholar and something of an art historian also uh, could have allowed one to develop that field a little more than perhaps it had been 
able to support through the then available facilities. So I think that uh, the Institute has made a huge impact on uh, Sanskrit scholarship in uh, the United States and beyond uh, by actually supporting numerous uh, young Sanskrit scholars to do all kinds of interesting projects uh, on Sanskrit texts, on Sanskrit religions, practices, and so on. So uh, it's made a huge impact in the uh, development of Sanskrit studies, no doubt. Now, since then, of course, it's, it's turned into a much more complex, organized uh, institution. The uh, center of operations shifted, of course, from Pune to Delhi, uh, where uh, Pradeep Mahendirata became the chief of operations on the Indian side. And ultimately, over the course of time, there was an expansion. Because in those days, you know, the, univ the, the Institute was living off uh, PL 480 rupees, essentially, oceans of rupees because of the PL 480 wheat deal uh, of the 1950s and 60s that ran along uh, those lines, which, which provided in huge amounts of uh, rupees for use uh, of American institutions in India. That's, of course, been drawn back and drawn back over the course of time. And it, it has put the uh, Institute in a different position uh, fiscally in order to try to survive and, and continue its work. Uh, but in those days, there was plenty of uh, resources to go around. And so ultimately, one was able to set up these satellite institutions, not only the regional language centers, which uh, had begun to develop, but also, of course, the um, all, uh, the Gurgaon uh, Center for the Institute to move away from Devens Colony, which finally never really fully happened, as far as I know. And um, the... Uh, ethnomusicology centers, the art and archaeology centers, and so on, to create a quite a, uh, an elaborate uh, institution as we know it uh, today, and a model for many uh, regional studies centers around uh, the United States in all kinds of areas of the world. This became the kind of uh, groundbreaking institution, American educational and research institution abroad. So that's been a rather elaborate trajectory. Uh, on the domestic side, of course, there were, as I said, I was a little bit of a gadfly because the uh, after Brown and we had a kind of regime of kind of, you know, the directors tended to run the, perhaps as a reflection of the old days, run things out of their own kind of ways, giving out fellowships to people they, that they favored and so on and so forth. So, uh, and the trustees were generally a very passive and quiet bunch. And when I became a trustee, uh, I got into a lot of fights by trying to get the rouse the trustees to to take a little bit of responsibility for uh, the the trajectory and direction of the of the um, uh, of the institution. And we had some interesting, lively uh, discussions and debates, which I think were all for for the good. And we finally. Uh, began to uh, move away from the old kind of patronage system uh, that, that I think had uh, remained in the institution for some years. Some of uh, the growing pains <laughs> of AAA. You could call it that, yes. And then, could you say a little bit about, you, you mentioned, you know, your work as a trustee. 
uh, but also as vice president of the Institute. Um, yeah. What your time was uh, at that point and, and maybe kind of reflecting on how your role has changed over the years. Well, of course, you know, uh, once I completed my degree and I, I got gainful employment in the field, the Sanskrit field, first at the University of Rochester very briefly <clears throat> and subsequently at the uh, University of California at Berkeley, uh, which was a member uh, fr from the very beginning. Uh, and that was a kind of interesting thing on our side because it's the University of California, which has, as you know, perhaps 10 campuses. And uh, actually Berkeley was the center and UCLA kind of got involved a little bit uh, on their end. But we were the ones that were charged with coming up with the annual dues for, for, for the uh, member institutions, which was always a struggle on the institutional level at home. Uh, but then, you know, I, I, be, I began to get senior fellowships uh, and I had kind of, I don't know, I guess sort of established myself as a bit of a gadfly, not to say troublemaker on the trustees uh, board. And uh, finally, I, I was, again, kind of active in trying to regularize the proceedings, uh, not that, so that the trustees didn't need to serve simply as a rubber stamp uh, group for the executive committee. This was, this was my concern at that time. And that, that's why we had some rather lively, let's put it that way, meetings. But ultimately, uh, when things began to turn around, uh, uh, I became more of a regular participant in that. I served on the uh, selection committee several times. And uh, as, as you say, as the um, vice president of the institution, which is a largely ceremonial position, I must say, but it, essentially it means you serve as the chair of the uh, selection committee. Uh, there aren't many uh, duties. It's kind of like the American president, vice president. <laughs> it's kind of a <laughs> real institution without much to do, um, which is okay. Uh, and, you know, I had the opportunity then over the course of years to have a number of uh, senior fellowships to, that, that enabled me to actually pursue and complete with uh, my colleagues and my wife, Sally Southern Goldman, uh, our major Ramayana project, which uh, was completed in uh, 2017, and now has just come out in a revised single volume uh, translation. So uh, that was heavily uh, owing to the support of the uh, AIS, because it enabled us to spend time in India working again with pundits very knowledgeable in the critical commentarial tradition uh, of Ramayana, uh, and, and work through some rather difficult and complex passages. So that's been extremely important uh, and actually essential to the progress of this project, which was what I, among other things, devoted uh, the bulk of my the last 50 years of my uh, scholarly life to. And it's incredible and the impactful translations that you've worked on, including this, you know, this project. They said it couldn't be done. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. And I, you know, I'm, I'm eager to see kind of what scholarship it spurs, you know, yeah. um, like what the, what comes after, you know, a kind of a momentous uh, um, translation effort and, and publication effort. And so, you know, coming to a little bit of the, the pedagogy itself, um, 
you know, so many of our episodes uh, on this uh, podcast series have focused on um, the research that AWS has supported or the history of the Institute in this particular series. But I wanted to highlight, um, you know, AWS and its role in the development of Sanskrit scholarship in the U.S. Um, so from your unique position in Sanskrit pedagogy and, and scholarship, which it's there, uh, pedagogy and specifically, you know, the teaching of Sanskrit, but that's not, I can't, re- you can't really separate that from the greater scholarship being done. It, it, it's hard to say, you know, just teaching and not scholarship because really they, they do go together. How do you see the history of Sanskrit study in the U.S. and the role of AWS in it? Well, as I was saying earlier, in my case, the, the great contribution of the AIS was to enable younger Sanskrit scholars to work in India with traditionally trained Sanskrit scholars in India, which is something that the previous generation had only occasionally had an opportunity to do. So, uh, as I said, we were trained as, as an undergraduate and graduate student very much in the European model that you would kind of assume that you knew Latin and Greek, and a lot of the grammatical terms were drawn from uh, Latin and Greek uh, classical studies. We were discouraged, actually, from reading the commentaries on Sanskrit works as uh, trivial, later, uh, mumbo-jumbo, things you didn't want to waste time on. And this was the the big uh, enlightenment that many of us had when we actually had a chance to be exposed to this vast world of, of knowledge and scholarship that was represented by these Indian scholars who had rarely been out of India, who had been trained sometimes from childhood, deeply grounded in Sanskrit uh, grammar, in, in uh, philological method, in uh, philosophy and, and uh, literature. And uh, we began to acquire a very different idea of Sanskrit. So uh, I realized that the, the Sanskrit study I had had as an undergraduate and graduate was, was rather deficient in that respect. We had these uh, archaic textbooks, so to speak, which weren't really textbooks. There was this sort of standard grammar of Sanskrit, right? Uh, Whitney's grammar from written in the 1890s. There was Perry's kind of uh, very Western-oriented, uh, archaic primer of Sanskrit. So one of the first things I did after coming back from India was actually to write a new Sanskrit teaching pedagogical tool based on Indian models of the language, putting the paradigms in the form in which the Indians learned them, uh, using the grammatical terms from the, the vast corpus of Indian grammatical literature, right? So... It was a very different thing. We find that's finally been published. It's very widely used by Sanskrit teachers all over the country and all over the world. This is called the Devavani Praveshika, the, uh, would you call it, introduction to the language of the gods. It's actually... It sits proudly on my shelf. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that was actually, starting with the Devavani Praveshika was... Um, a kind of the leveling up of my own, you know, the Sanskrit journey as it was um, in learning the terminology, as you said, you know, not learning it from a very Eurocentric perspective, but mm-hmm. actually learning the, you know, the, the terms for, you know, the grammatical forms. And that was, like I said, a, a leveling up for me. And I even noticed, you know, it changed my relationship to the way that I learned. Mm-hmm. And, and you had mentioned earlier that one of the things that you, that, that 
that kind of you know flipped a switch for you was this speaking of it and and I did a summer uh, in the Sanskrit pro AWS Sanskrit program there in Korea. Mm. For me, that was, I, and if, I think if I could speak for pretty much almost all of the students, that that was our first time speaking Sanskrit in that mm. way. And that it really did change our relationship to learning the language. And then subsequently, the work that came out of, you know, translation or, or whatever our, our small roles there were that summer um, and scholarship that came out of that. Uh, could you say something about kind of also the the speaking and, and maybe how that changed your view and yeah, pedagogically? Exactly. because unless you can listen to and speak a language, you can't understand it as a language per se. So we had learned it previous to that as a kind of a code. You know, you, 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 you looked up every word in the dictionary and you figured it out and you, you sort of decoded uh, the text and you didn't catch the spirit of the text. You didn't catch the nuances in the text the ironies that are sometimes in the text until you have an opportunity to engage in conversation with Sanskrit speakers. I had spent my, my first junior fellowship. I worked with several Sanskrit scholars, uh, the late V.W. Uh, Paranjipe, with whom I read uh, Mahabharata and commentaries because my dissertation was on some aspects of Mahabharata. And then I read uh, a, a variety of philosophical, grammatical, and other texts with uh, the late uh, great Pandit Srinivasa Shastri. Now, Srinivasa Shastri's English was very shaky. He was a Tamil speaker and a Sanskrit speaker. And uh, he used to explain the text in Sanskrit. And at first, it was just a web of sound for me. You know, I just couldn't understand it. And I, I he would speak for a while in Sanskrit, and then he would look up at me and he'd say, Avagatamla, have you understood it? And I didn't understand it. And then he would repeat it and so on and so forth, but I couldn't understand it. And I've had no experience. I never heard Sanskrit even pronounced properly. Many of the Sanskrit scholars, very uh, distinguished, you could say, Sanskrit scholars in those days couldn't pronounce Sanskrit at all properly, uh, which was kind of shocking. Finally, just when he would say that, he'd say, Avagatamla, have you understood? I would say, oh, I'm Abhagatam. I understand. But I didn't. <laughs> I just didn't want to slow the procedure down. <laughs> and, you know, make I, I've, been, I've been there myself. <laughs> right. So I would nod and say, I, I got it. I got it. But I didn't get it. But what happens is you see, you listen long enough and you start to get it. Like you learn, any, like you learn your own language from childhood, but hearing people speak to you and around you and so on and so forth. Gradually, it became to click. Now, in that group, there were a number of European scholars. There were two or three of us reading together. Uh, one of them was this a very dour Dutch scholar. And he hated it, the idea that we were speaking Sanskrit. He would denounce it. He would say, oh, this is just some American trick or something like that, you know, because he'd never heard anyone speak Sanskrit and he didn't hold with it. He didn't like it, you know. So we used to get into arguments about that. But eventually, it opened up a whole new world so that you could actually interact with important Sanskrit scholars who didn't really speak English very well. And if you didn't share a common Indian language, I had known, I, I, you know, I was uh, trained in Hindi, I knew a little Marathi, but I didn't know Tamil. So uh, Srinivas Shastri could hardly communicate uh, in either of those languages other than uh, Sanskrit. So eventually, but you start to learn all the kind of idioms in Sanskrit, the 
the folklore, the maxims, you know, the whole deep culture of a language, rather than just picking out words on a page. So this is what we're trying to prepare our students to do by getting them to uh, uh, recite Sanskrit. We always have in class, we have them recite uh, Sanskrit verses, memorize Sanskrit verses, in other words, to activate the kind of Sanskrit neural channels in your brain so that you understand it as a language, not just as some characters on a page. Many of the people in, the, in those days uh, didn't even teach the students Devanagari. They only read texts in Roman transliteration. I mean, it was really quite pathetic in a way uh, when you have a tradition of, of such depth and importance as the whole Sanskrit intellectual and aesthetic uh, culture going on for literally millennia. Uh, but there was just this obsession with Latin and Greek, you know, really dead languages, let's face it, but Sanskrit, not so much dead language. And there's still, you know, we go to meetings, we would give lectures in Sanskrit, we would go to Sanskrit uh, discussions and all these kind of things. Uh, and to get into that as an actual linguistic and cultural medium of expression, rather than just a dry kind of way of picking out, you know, issues of Vedic sacrifice and so on and so forth. Not that those are not important, but uh, it's a different way of approaching Sanskrit. So that's why I felt I had to write my own teaching method based on that experience, put together just in handwritten notes. Finally, uh, with Saliji, they kind of we put together this book, and it's still in print, and uh, people still use it very widely. And, uh, you know, it's, nothing's perfect, but it, I think, you know, it was an approach to teaching Sanskrit to American students or European students who've had no exposure to it, it seems to work fairly well. That That's one of the things that uh, definitely is a, a product of, of my time as an AIS fellow. Uh, there's no way, if I had not had that support to go to India, to have that experience of sitting for years at a time, if I, for, as, as I told you, because of the largesse of uh, Norman, as everybody called, Professor Norman Brown, I would not have had that experience and probably still be teaching the same old Sanskrit method that I learned, which was, was rather unsatisfactory. And that's a great way to kind of think of like how the AWS experience transformed your teaching, then becoming, you know, a really important, you know, foundational kind of force in the way we learn, we've learned Sanskrit um, over, over the years. I'm, I'm kind of curious, what challenges have you faced teaching Sanskrit? Um, and, and how have these changed over time? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Sanskrit, as you know, I, I see you are a Sanskrit student, uh, is not an easy language to learn. So it, it presents its own challenges for uh, students approaching it, <clears throat> whether they've approached it from either a European language like English or whether they grew up in India uh, with an Indian uh, spoken language because there are, there are different challenges from each. For the people who are, say, uh, Anglophone coming to uh, Sanskrit, of course, it's a whole different experience. Most of them have not uh, studied, unlike previous generations, have not studied a uh, highly inflected language, uh, have to learn the uh, cases, all that kind of thing. And, of course, Sanskrit presents its own unique obstacle at the beginning, which is su Sunday. As you know, <laughs> Sunday is like the, the huge block in your past before you can do anything in Sanskrit, you know. <laughs> I think Great. I still have my uh, laminated Sunday chart. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We'd sleep with it at night, you know, hoping some of it would sink in. Yeah. Um, so that's always a challenge. One of the challenges I find, you know, I get students from India 
sometimes who who are you know uh, natively proficient in Indian languages. That's its own sort of problem because the Indian languages, of course, most of them actually have whether they're so-called Indo-Aryan languages, North Indian languages, or Dravidian languages of the South, have incorporated huge amounts of Sanskrit vocabulary. But as you know from studying Sanskrit, another frustration of Sanskrit is that every word has about 35 different meanings. Yeah. So how do you know? You just look in the dictionary. It's not going to help you because everything <laughs> means uh, a vast variety of things. And until you know the context, until you know, if you understand context, you can't really tell. And what happens in modern languages is that that Sanskrit term gets frozen in a specific meaning. And it's not the meaning that is in the text in front of you that the class is reading. So the students get kind of, you know, flummoxed over things like that. No, but mirror means, you know, in my in my home, when they say samskara, it means this. And, you know, and those that those vary depending on the language, you know, in, uh, you know, in, 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 say, in Punjabi, samskara is like an honorific re reception or something for somebody. In Bangla, samskara is, is like a funeral. It can be very confusing. So um, those are kind of things you have to be aware of. So, and, and it's the thing is that we found that the only way to make progress in this is to do it really very intensively. So we developed here at Berkeley a very, very unusually intensive Sanskrit curriculum. So the first year Sanskrit, typically from eight to That's ten, fantastic Monday through <laughs> Friday. It's fantastic, and it's 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 stressful. But the, but the students either learn to drop out quickly or to love it one way or the other. Uh, it <laughs> people out. But um, the benefit of that is they really make a lot of progress. So uh, that's essentially twice the classroom hours of most American Sanskrit programs. And we see that sometimes I get graduate students who come in uh, having had two years of Sanskrit at another American institution. And, and within a few days, uh, they have to go back into the first year class here because they haven't had that kind of intensive training the, the, like fundamental foundational training sure. yeah so uh that's one of the things that we kind of push heavily here you know it's it's a kind of a boot camp for sanskrit and uh, then we send the students to the sanskrit program at ais uh where they they make a lot of progress once they've been through a year or two of our program they're in a very good position to uh, benefit from uh, that I, I remember a distinct part of the pedagogy around the Devavani Praveshika was the recitation, was kind of the process of creating the sounds, and let alone the, the memorization and kind of hearing the, the pronunciation, but then also how the sandhi actually kind of comes out and comes together and, right. and all these. And, you know, we would, a couple of us would, who had you know, some recitation kind of background or at least exposure um, would experiment with different types of recitation, but also for fun, trying new songs. But the whole process of that, that I learned with the pedagogy around the Devavani Praveshika prepared me for the Sanskrit summer in Pune with AAS because we also did that there. And not everybody had that kind of background. And so I didn't realize that that was kind of tied to the, the way that you all did it at, at Berkeley. I thought it was like, oh, this is just kind of, um, you know, a bonus activity that we did. But, and, you know, now it kind of makes sense hearing the history and kind of context and how that came together. Oh, yeah. I mean, like uh, uh, Sally, who's been teaching the uh, first and second year for many years at uh, 
uh, Berkeley, she starts every single class with uh, everyone has had to memorize at least one shloka and recite it for the class. Because okay. you know, the prosody of Sanskrit is so critical to the poetry and everything else. So, you know, it's, it's the long versus short vowels, the heavy versus lagu syllables, you know? So if you can't get the, I have students who are very good, but they can't get all the long A's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they get the short A's and I'm, I'll constantly correct them and say, ah, <laughs> uh, ah, <laughs> ah, you know? And they say, oh, sorry, ah, you know, but it's, 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 that's probably the most difficult thing about for speakers of European languages in, in pronouncing Sanskrit is that prosody of Sanskrit, right? So it's not Ramayana, you know, it's Ramayana, you know, you, that kind of thing. Mahabharata, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's ba-ba-ba-ba. You have to learn the, the music of it, really. And that's why it's so helpful to learn the little tunes, you know, that go along with the recitation in many cases, right? Because that mm -hmm. fixes in your mind mm -hmm. the actual prosody of the Sanskrit versification. You know, what are the guru and what are the lagu syllables? The long, the short, the conjuncts, and so on. So you know, once you you, you sort of internalize that as a little melody, because it's a musical thing, really. Uh, then you really learn to pronounce correctly, to articulate correctly. Uh, so we do drill that a lot, mainly for, again, as I say, for being able to communicate properly with Sanskrit-knowing audiences who literally can't understand what you're saying. Uh, sometimes, if you can't pronounce the words correctly or they'll correct you it's it's just an embarrassment of, uh, you know that uh, uh, for uh, sometimes for american or european scholars not to be able to pronounce you, you, i mean you wouldn't tolerate that in a department of french or german or italian mm -hmm. but only in sanskrit people get away with this uh, kind of uh, shoddy pronunciation so this is uh, one of our c campaigns against poor sanskrit pronunciation right <laughs> Definitely. Um, and to kind of shift gears a little bit to kind of applying all of this training uh, that we've been talking about um, and to look back at the, the years that we get to maybe of the more modern approach to, to Sanskrit study. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how this, how has the study of, of Sanskrit text changed over the years that you've seen it? Um, you know, this is affected by perspectives and trends and, and all kinds of different disciplines, mm -hmm. literary studies, religious studies, different forms of textual analysis. I mean, digital humanities, for example, uh, also uh, and, and women's and gender studies and all of these different fields and their approaches. How have you seen the, the change there affect the change of Sanskrit text? Well, I, I think the change has been profound in all of these areas and, and for the better. When I started, uh, my uh, scholarly career, I had become rather interested in psychoanalysis and in looking at text through that kind of lens. And as I said, my teachers and their peers had been trained almost uniformly in a very strictly philological uh, method. They would like to get inside the text about meanings and implications and what, what, is, what is the personality of the author? What is, he, what is the positionality of the author? They, they just took these things as almost like the Vedas, as revealed texts. There's the text. And, and we read it. And I remember even as a graduate student, I used to try in, in seminar to get into those kind of things. 
And my teachers would say, well, Bob, uh, let's not do that right now. Let's wait till we finish the entire text. I say, we'll never finish the entire text. It's the freaking Shatapata Brahmana. <laughs> you could read it for years, you'll never finish it. <laughs> and, but you know, that was the thing. There's always to stay away from that. So I had gotten interested in uh, looking, you know, kind of psychologically, you could say, at the representation of gender, of hierarchy, uh, of social class in, in these texts, which people had very much steered clear of. And I started giving these papers uh, at the American Oriental Society. This is back in the 70s. And I can tell you, people hated it. And they hated me. <laughs> they, they used to get very agitated, you know, and people would stand up and say, do you expect me to psychoanalyze Bava Bhuti? And I would say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and they would, I had people walk out of sessions they would be oh, so, wow. so angry um, uh, at that. And, uh, you know, I was trying to, like, get inside these texts in a way that, you know, these are not revealed scriptures. These are literary texts that were composed by actually living human beings at a specific points in history. And, you know, Sanskrit itself has this kind of tendency, the Sanskrit tradition, to, to ahistoricize Sanskrit studies you know it's just sanskrit the undying language the the and so on and so forth but you know these history changes you know social mores change from region to region from century to century with religious changes and so on so uh i've gotten into that and these things are reflected often in the uh texts themselves and in the commentaries on the text because often the commentaries are many centuries later than the texts themselves uh, and I began to get very interested in that and reading the receptive history of these texts. The, the typical philological approach has always been the genetic history of the text. How has the text grown? You know, let's cut the Mahabharata down to its bare core, the essential Mahabharata, which has been added to. This was like the Germanic form of scholarship to kind of edit out parts of the text that you didn't like, essentially, right? And uh, I was saying, no, you have to take these texts as they're received by their intended audiences. They're not written for German philologists. These were written for the Indian audience, right? And in fact, I have a paper that's going to come out in the AOS, uh, Journal of the American Oriental Society, uh, soon, in, in looking at the way medieval, mostly uh, Sri Vaishnava commentators, read Valmiki's Ramayana. In, in vastly different ways than the text mm. itself by, by creating mm -hmm. all kinds of uh, interpretive strategies that, uh, you know, that you, could, you have to read the text on two levels, right? There's a spashtartha, right? Or prakatartha, the, the surface level. And then there's the mm -hmm. vastavartha, you know, the real subtext meaning and so on and so forth to try to keep in tune with the changing religious theories of, of, of the Rama cult essentially. Because if you look at the medieval Ramayana, it's a very different animal than Valmiki. And then it's focusing on the suffering. How do you rationalize the suffering of God? So these are what the commentators spend a lot of uh, intellectual capital on. So I was trying to train our students to do this kind of thing, this kind of study. And people actually, when I started out, really didn't like it. <laughs> but subsequently, people, younger scholars began to get involved with it. So you get a lot of people who are working on those literary commentaries, 
you know, epic commentaries like Chris Minkowski on Sinlila Kanta on the uh, Mahabharata Bhavadipa. So uh, this was the kind of thing that, and I, I was kind of insistent on that, that you really didn't understand this text if you didn't understand it in its receptive context, right? And that, of course, got me into trouble. Most famously, I had uh, reviewed in the Journal of Asian Studies the first volume of the Chicago uh, translation of the Mahabharata by Van Bautnen, yeah? And I made a very critical review. And, uh, you know, I said he, he really didn't, there's no substantial annotation there. He doesn't, there are all kinds of problems with that translation. But one of them is he hasn't looked at the way in which the commentators have wrestled with these issues as well. At least you don't have to follow them but you should know what they have to say. In many cases, they're enlightening. If you disagree, you disagree because they don't agree among themselves. But you should know what the receptive tradition of that has been. Well, anyway, uh, he, he did not take it kindly that this young, <laughs> smart aleck graduate student was reviewing the great man. So he wrote a counter blast against me. And then that was uh, in the journal. It was the first time I think the journal ever allowed... Uh, a response to a review. Oh wow! I'll have to go uh, look under that, that <laughs> under the title of India's Great War, as opposed to the latest thing. If you've seen the uh, New York Review of Books review by Wendy Doniger, oh, I haven't. Oh, and my response and her response to my response. You should check oh. it out. <laughs> I have to look that up. Yeah. So, you know, I had met him as uh, he was visiting uh, when I was an AIS fellow in India. Uh, he came through Pune, and he was highly respected and very learned. And um, I was, you know, kind of like a little Sanskrit puppy, you know. I was so excited to see the great man, and I, I went up to him, and he was translating the Mahabharata. And, and I said to him, um, oh, Professor Van Bautenen, uh, now that you're here, I'm wondering, who are you reading the text with, and which commentaries are you reading with scholars? So he looked at me with great disdain. And he said, young man, it is my great boast that I have never consulted a single person about a single line. And I thought, that's where you went wrong. That was a big mistake. Uh, wow. You know? So that's the thing we've been pushing against. We make all our, we never read a text of, of whatever kind with our students without reading the commentary. They have to learn how to read the commentaries. They have to learn how, the, the mode of expression of the commentators, how they analyze a text, what concerns are of importance to them. And these things often infect what has become, of course, another great development in um, scholarship, which is this, this beginning of, of a kind of formal study of gender, right? Women's studies, studies of sexuality, gender, and so on, uh, which was very important. So the, the thing was, when I started out this it was kind of a, a an irritant in the in the Sanskrit universe, so to speak, because people who did psychoanalytic studies of text were doing them of European texts. That was a well-established field, right? But they didn't know Sanskrit. No way they knew Sanskrit. Then there were all these Sanskrit scholars who knew Sanskrit, but not only didn't know anything about psychology or psychoanalysis, they actually hated it. And they resisted any application of it, that Sanskrit texts are not subject to that sort of analysis. It's just, they just ruled that out. Um, and so that created a kind of burr in the saddle of Sanskrit studies and started people thinking about this kind of thing 
Uh, and you saw more and more of that. And of course, uh, with developments in, in the studies of uh, Indian philosophy, bhakti studies particularly have developed a lot, uh, different kinds of reader response theory, translation theory, a lot of things have developed that had developed outside the Sanskrit world because of the kind of isolation of Sanskrit from almost all other forms of humanistic scholarship in the Western Academy. This was the thing. Yeah. And even, you know, even East Asian stuff, you know, people were translating haiku and they were translating Sanskrit tang poetry in the dream of the Western chamber, uh, you know, and Sanskrit was something other because it's, it's, difficult and the aesthetic is is very much its own and unless you become familiar with that steeped in it by reading it intensively reading the commentaries because that's the next best thing to having reading with a, a, a traditionally trained scholar because that's what they were these commentators are scholars who interpret the text and exhibit their knowledge of all different shastras you know alankara shastra mimamsa vyakarana everything, architectural knowledge, pakashastra, cooking, because everything in the epics comes up, you know, foods are described, buildings are described, all kinds of practices are described. So you sort of get, dig into the culture in a very broad way. That's what these people were trained to do, and that's what they do, and bring it to bear on these texts. But again, not as some kind of divine figures out of the blue. They're scholars, they're humans, they have their own uh, ideas, they, they make these misogynistic remarks that, you know, echoing those in the original texts. Uh, this is the world that they uh, lived in. Uh, and you have to look at those things and, and understand Sanskrit as a living thing and that these are living cultures. Uh, and these people represent specific social classes, obviously. Uh, most of the Sanskrit literature and commentaries done by Brahmins. And that's a whole different thing, too. And um, the representation of uh, non-Brahmin classes uh, or non-Brahmin and Kshatriya classes, non-Kshatriya classes in the epics is also very interesting, which I've written on, you know, the way uh, tribal people are treated, the way Shudras, so-called, are treated uh, in the epic. It tells you a lot about the way these authors of these texts and the transmitters of the texts and commentators viewed the social universe. So, so there's a whole complex of social, sexual, gendered, uh, political, all kinds of things are, are dragged into these texts, you know, and they're read in this very holistic fashion, not in this very narrow kind of Kupa Manduka way that we were trained to read. So I, I think that that's been a tremendous development in, uh, in Sanskrit. Now you see people writing on women's studies and the Mahabharata and so on and so forth. That's, that really opens up the field to all kinds of new kinds of knowledge. Yeah, kind of a, a different kind of blossoming of, of the Sanskrit field and all of these different dimensions getting mm -hmm. explored. Um, which kind of brings me to the, my, my last question. So with, with all of these new ways of looking at Sanskrit texts and so many students now trained, you know, with the kind of Berkeley methods and Devavani Praveshika on their shelves and, and having gone to the AWS, you know, S Sanskrit programs, all of these students now, you know, publishing their own um, scholarship on Sanskrit or having, you know, to do with Sanskrit, taking that Sanskrit and applying it in a different way. 
what do you think that the future of Sanskrit study looks like? Well, that's a good question, too. There, there are two ways to think about it. One is a very positive way that we've been speaking about just now. And I think, you know, Sanskrit studies are opening up a little into the worldview of other humanistic and social scientific scholars. <clears throat> because most of the um, Western scholars who are very highly trained in literary theory or European literature or classical literature know next to nothing about Sanskrit. Uh, when I first came to Berkeley, I thought that my, the, the two people doing Sanskrit in my department at that time, one was a linguist and the other was a philosopher. And nobody was doing anything to do with literary studies, which was my interest. So I thought my natural allies would be in the Berkeley's comparative literature department, which is a big department in which every faculty member has one half their position in that department and one half in a Lang Lit department, right? A French department or Italian department or whatever. Fine. So I arranged a lunch with um, the chair of the Compet Lit department and another scholar in the department. We went out and had lunch. And I thought I, I was trying to see if I could get half my position transferred into comparative literature. And they were saying things like, you mean there's literature in Sanskrit? Uh, so it was that level. So I said, uh, okay, maybe we'll, maybe we'll just enjoy our lunch, you know? So it was that kind of thing. You could, so it's hard to get people to open up something that seems so obscure to everybody else, right? Uh, it's just like one step too far. You know, I can read a haiku because it's very short, but I'm not going to read the Kumara Sambhava. So it's difficult, you know, and, uh, Breaking into the the general intellectual universe of the West, I think, has been a bit of a struggle. So consider, like, every couple of years, somebody <clears throat> comes out <clears throat> with a new translation of, like, the Iliad, right? And immediately all the popular uh, intellectual-ish journals, like New York Review of Books, New York Times, uh, you know, uh, Times Literary Supplement, comes out with a review of it. Oh, no, this, this is the first one done by a woman, or this is from a feminist view, or this is a new translation, and on and on and on. Fine. Great. The, the Iliad's been translated, what, about a million times. Now, you do a work like a translation of the Ramayana, it gets reviewed only in the Asian scholarly journals, right? The yeah. AOS and the, you know, maybe in the you know, J-A-R, whatever. Um, so the idea cannot ever get into, like, the mainstream, so to speak. So when I was at the AOS meetings in March, Gary Tubbs comes up to me and he says, you know, I've been agitating for some time to get, like, the Ramayana in one of those journals, reviewed in a journal like the New York Review of Books, right? So I didn't know, I, I more or less had given up on it. So um, Gary Tubb comes up to me at the meeting and he says, uh, I have good news and bad news. <laughs> so I said, what's the good news? <laughs> he said, you know, your Ramayana, the one volume Ramayana has been reviewed in the New York Review of Books. I said, wow, you're kidding me. I said, what's the bad news? He said, well, who reviewed it? <laughs> oh, no. And that was Wendy. So there it is. You know, it's, it's the thing was trying to 
bring in the wider humanistic forms of uh, knowledge as they're developing in other fields into what, what has always been a rather stodgy field, which is Indology, right? Because there were all these resistances built in. You know, there were, back when in those days, there were almost no women doing Sanskrit. It was a very male, white male Euro kind of operation, you see. And, and, and that has begun to change over time, getting more women into it, women with different perspectives, different interests. Uh, so I think that's one of the, the very positive things uh, for Sanskrit studies, that, that because it's now open itself to the winds of scholarship from other areas of the humanities, which for which it was kind of insulated for many years. So that's one thing. So I think that's that's all to the good. The, 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 the difficult and the worrying thing, though, is that Sanskrit studies cannot be entirely divorced from Indian politics, because unlike Latin and Greek, which are actual artifacts of extinct religious cultures, right? the, the uh, Olympian gods, the cult of the Olympian gods or the Roman uh, gods who are closely allied to that. You're, you're, you're dealing with a living religious tradition going back into great antiquity, changing over the years, but currently very much wrapped up with this kind of uh, Hindutva mentality. And that has played itself out on Sanskrit scholarship, you know, because there's been now, it used to be, you know, when, when in, in the old days, when you went to study Sanskrit in India, the Indian Sanskrit or anyone you met was just head over heels. Oh my God, what a wonderful thing. An American and you're studying Sanskrit. This is fabulous. I, I studied a little in school, but you know so much and I know so little. This is great. So everybody loved it, right? Now, of course, it's almost an object of contempt, right? Now, oh, you have this horrible, you're neo-Orientalist, you know, you're, you're undermining Hinduism, you're a missionary, you're a colonialist. So, you know, you have whole meetings of like Swadeshi and Indology attacking by name specific Sanskrit scholars. Uh, so it becomes a little bit daunting. You know, you see the whole flaps over the uh, social media over like uh, Sheldon Pollock and Audrey Trushke and attacks on me and the Ramayana translation and so on and so forth. So that becomes a little bit daunting because, you know, uh, you get really uh, trolled uh, often for doing uh, kind of the kind of scholarship that is so positive in its direction, in my view, is also now getting, uh, you know, trolled and difficult to do in India in some cases. So that's something that's a bit worrisome. Um, I have to say, it's been uh, a wonderful honor to, to be able to chat with you about all things Sanskrit today. Um, so thank you so much. Well, that's our time for today. A grateful thank you to Robert Goldman, Professor of the Graduate School and Catherine and William L. Magistretti, Distinguished Professor of Sanskrit Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. And thank you for listening. For more information on all of the American Institute of Indian Studies programs and fellowships, visit www.indiastudies.org.